0: I'm Scott Kerr, and you're listening to Facing the Giants, a podcast where I speak to today's luxury entrepreneurs about taking on the Goliaths of the industry. My guest on Facing the Giants is Matt Abramchik, one of New York City's most prominent restaurateurs and owner of Neighborhood Projects Restaurant Group, which includes under its umbrella some highly recognized mainstays in the Tribeca neighborhood of New York City, like Tiny's and the Bar Upstairs, Eve, Smith & Mills, Warren 77, and Holy Ground. Matt Abramchik's latest project is The Golden Swan, a bar and restaurant housed in an iconic century-old bi-level townhouse in the West Village. The Golden Swan is Matt and Chef Doug Brixton's combined vision for a French Mediterranean restaurant as seen through a New York lens. Matt has said he wants The Golden Swan to quote-unquote feel like a clubhouse without being a membership club. Welcome, Matt.
1: Good morning, Scott. How are you?
0: Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, first I have to congratulate you on the opening of the Golden Swan, but before we jump into all things restaurant, can you talk about your professional background before you open your very first establishment?
1: Sure, Scott. Thank you. Thanks again for this morning. Um uh yeah, I sort of um came to the restaurant business in in I guess one of the uh you know ways that people do is in kind of by accident, not through studying any great metric of food, or I was never a bartender anywhere beforehand, but I worked in um, more traditional kind of finance business, generally around the New York area, just working in different finance companies of one or another type. So I was happy to find something that was uh, as exciting as, as uh, doing what I do today.
0: And your foray into the hospitality business was in 2006, leasing the old abandoned Beatrice Inn in the West Village, which was once a speakeasy. Uh, Then there was an eatery and you turned it into one of the hottest spots in the city. And in the mid 2000s, the Beatrice Inn ruled as this subterranean bar for fashion designers, editors, stylists, and celebrities and young socialites. You called it a, you know, our land of misfit toys. Can you tell listeners what New York nightlife was like back then and why the Beatrice Inn was so popular uh
1: yeah absolutely it was really um the the most fun time in my life um it was uh sort of uh, a time when New York before before really cell phone um at least the iPhone uh, sort of created um what you see today which is a constant uh sort of uh hovering around the the, the telephone device uh Nightlife seemed to, you know, vanish sort of shortly after that, or not vanish, just change. But really, truly, before nightlife in New York felt like anything could happen, and um, truly a diverse experience, whereupon you, you could meet anyone from anywhere, uh, any any sort of night, uh, a lot of creative types and fashion types, but even sort of social and finance types were always free and um, feeling that. You know, sort of nothing would be not nothing would be captured. There was no, no one was worried about uh, looking over their shoulder. True, truly a free experience.
0: And why was the Beatrice Inn so popular? How did it catch fire?
1: The Beatrice was
2: um, an exciting place where people would oftentimes when they entered not not realize just quite how low the basement ceilings really were in some areas lower than seven feet tall. Really, I think the experience people had was a really relatable one where they found themselves in this kind of, by default, cozy space because the ceilings were so short. And so the way we uh, art directed it, uh, it it had the feeling of a kitchen um, with a little uh, library or den room, small room painted in pink to the right of it, and a a kind of a living room, which was also obviously low ceiling and had these large deco built in sort of tiger's uh, wood and black leather in a powder blue room. And then we had this stairs there enclosed, which had a higher ceiling and was a checkered uh, floor uh, that was, you know, we had a disco ball back there and that was a, a place where people would dance.
0: How long, uh, how long was the Beatrice and open for and why did it close?
2: Well, it actually closed because of those ceiling heights in the end. The, the, the building department felt it was too funky <laughs> to, to go down <laughs> there for, for most folks, actually. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was one of these places where you could meet anyone and, and you could sort of, uh, y- there was such an excitement around it that oftentimes the place was so full that eventually we just couldn't, uh, people, people were having too much fun. They just had to, <laughs> they had to close it down.
0: And soon after you reopened the Beatrice, you branched out into the Tribeca neighborhood and dotted your thumbprint across it with a number of popular spots, including a Summer Day Cafe, Holy Ground, Smith & Mills, Tiny's and the the Bar Upstairs, Warren 77, and Eve. What was it about the Tribeca location that you felt was prime for growing this small restaurant and bar fiefdom? (laughs)
2: <laughs> as you wish, Scott.
0: Yeah. No, I
2: think, uh, look, it, 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 we, Um. we had been in the West Village before that with Beatrice and employees only. And uh, we always loved the West Village, but um, it, it was becoming increasingly more expensive. And the neighbor situation was it just, there were so many couple hundred year old buildings with really difficult sort of relationships between mechanicals and this and that we kind of went down to Tribeca and found these, you know, buildings that were largely commercial buildings that were bigger and sort of, it was cheaper and it was just from a real estate perspective that the market was less developed. So you could really try to find something um, unique and and start out with a a lower rent. I also lived in the neighborhood at the time. So, you know, it's a natural place to start from is where you live. And, you know, when we moved down to Tribeca, it, it, it felt like, Sort of like the frontier was was wide open because of the availability of space and just having um, you know bigger space than the West Village, it, it felt um, you know sort of natural. And and looking at the community at large, it just seemed like Tribeca at the time didn't have a lot of uh, places that were like what we did. And so we sort of just naturally kept developing these different personalities of venues that. Uh, my friends and I who lived in the area wanted to sort of inhabit ourselves.
0: And it sort of just, it, it grew from there. And your restaurant group Neighborhood Projects is all about, as you put it, developing neighborhood experiences. Can you talk about your restaurant group and its approach?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, Tribeca is is the base case where it all started, but we really always believed that the restaurants and the businesses like ours, the, you know, clubs and, you know, even lower service places like coffee shops and, you know, bagel stores or whatever are major hubs of communities um, and really reasons why people move to a community. They're the destinations and the sort of central um, meeting points of like-minded, you know, folks. So we've always sort of felt like in Tribeca, what we demonstrated was that you could have a number of places that supported one community and um, with different menus and different slight uh, design aspects and uh, sort of concepts, you know, it, it really had been and has been an uh, ideal way to sort of meet and serve a, a group of people.
0: And now you're back in the West Village as part of your expansion plan with the recent May opening of the Golden Swan. Where did you see the room for growth for a new restaurant within the New York market?
2: The New York market is a really expensive, place to do business i think increasingly the types of restaurants i built in tribeca if you look at places by way of their commonality through check average and overall value proposition service level i would say generally you know places in that middle ground of price and sort of elevated casual service really are a challenge to develop profitability because it's so hard to pass on all the increases in levels of variable cost to the um, consumer in that price range that you find that you almost wish that you went to a more um, commodity-like business, like a bagel store or coffee shop, uh, or then on the opposite end, the luxury sort of business where you're, you know, charging in the higher price ranges and the triple-digit price ranges uh, per person. And and so um, I think the future is at the you know sort of polar polarities you know at the high end and the low end, and in the middle, I think it will be tough to have innovation in the next number of years
0: and so was returning to the West Village always in the playbook?
2: Well, yeah, I mean the West Village became sort of um, unreachable after the early part of my career because of how expensive the Doors had been, uh, but it was always the place that I loved um, first and in a way the most because it has such a unique quality being um, like a little village. The West Village is, you know, quaint near the water, having the low building line and the, you know, streets of row houses and townhouses and carriage houses and all these beautiful historic buildings. I mean, if you think about where we are at the Golden Swan, there's no more beautiful building than the one across the street from us, covered in ivy on a you know offset corner, so that the light wells uh, break on the building, and you have this like incredible glow on the building. It's just such a um, special building uh, that we have at the Golden Swan. But no, the West Village had always been you know the place we wanted to, to operate in, but that it, it just uh, it just it was a welcomed challenge of a lifetime to find this project, um, and, and it was, you know, really a dream come true. It's, it's the, the most um, aspirational venue for me. I think the way that we um, have been able to come back to the West Village is ideal.
0: The Golden Swan occupies a beautiful two-story townhouse that was previously home to the Spotted Pig restaurant, and for my listeners, the Spotted Pig was a seminal New York dining spot for about two decades known for its gastropub fair. It shuttered in 2020 after being mired in a bunch of lawsuits against its owner. Did you have your eye on that space when things were looking bleak for the Spotted Pig?
2: No, not really. I, think, I feel like um, our business is such a tough... It, it, it involves so many variables and so many different silos of speciality that I always liked the building, and I liked how it sat on the corner. I, I loved uh, the, the Beatrice and property, although there's a funny story when I rented the Beatrice, really I wanted to rent the Waverly Inn. That was available too, and so was Cafe Clooney, but right. um, there was sort of this game, landlord's game, where he said the person that gives the lease back to his first will get the Waverly Inn. Um, although I think it was me, I, I think I was the last choice of theirs, so I ended up with the Beatrice, but all those three restaurants, Clooney, Beatrice, and Waverly opened up at a time. And then, you know, that was, a, that was when Beatrice had, you know, that great run was basically I spent time with my friends that are the owners of all those restaurants. And basically, you know, that, that was my triumvirate or although, although that was my whole universe, basically that three, two or three block radius, but the, but the, you know, walking through the village and always going to employees only, which was another one of our first places, you know, the Spotted Pig was always that place that like employees only, I think it, they opened uh, like maybe a little bit earlier than Beatrice a few years earlier. Were sort of like the old guard places, but we, we, you know, we, we never really had a, a big relationship. Um, I never really ve- frequented the venue as much as I probably would have if I didn't have this, you know, incredible, you know, sort of triumvirate a uh, few blocks away. But you know, the, these, all these, Businesses and, and, and great uh, restaurants had been the restaurants that everybody was going to in the neighborhood. So, you know, the, the space was well known to me. And really, th- there are so many incredible spaces in the neighborhood. But that one, uh, because it's a standalone building, really, it's, it, it stands out. It, it's actually two buildings that were combined Um, So you have this array of windows that's very actually loft-like. It almost feels like a Soho loft in the way it has a sort of a train car, you know, that two or three set window in the front of the building, which is on the 11th street side. And then we have a wash of like eight windows or six windows and then two windows in the hall. Uh, But there's a long, there's a long run of windows that wrap the building. So when you're sitting upstairs, the architecture is so, I always felt like when I was uh, upstairs before I, I missed seeing out the windows and I, it, it wasn't really, you know, I was always I, just head over heels with the second floor potential because I, I've always loved the ability to eat on a second floor or to be in some sort of, uh, o- you know, position overlooking, you know, uh, the street, but not on the street level, uh, especially in more period architecture. Uh, but, but I think, the 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 space had always been the, the the most potential I ever saw in the world, like the best dining room floor on the second floor potential. And you know, I think coming into the building, we've really developed uh, a whole new sort of uh, concept layout. People kind of when they come in now are are so amazed that they that the space used to be the Spotted Pig. It's 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 kind of funny. Um, to see how people that engage so frequently in the space could be so uh, transformed with, with it, looking you know in a completely different light. It's been it's been um, it's been very interesting.
0: And when you finally got the space, what was the vision and vibe you pictured for the Golden Swan?
2: Well, like some of those places that we opened you know, last in the neighborhood, or that that that, uh, that I was mentioning before, the Beatrice and Waverly and Clooney, and um, you know, taking inspiration from the architecture and be really trying to develop into the architecture of the you know eighteen forty eighteen seventy combined uh, townhouse uh, led us to this English kind of period townhouse style, working with BWA Architects as Waverly and and Beatrice did at a later time after I sold it to Graydon. Uh, But the design style definitely tried, you know, came came from the bones of the building. And so we developed into this like English uh, wood clad dining room, classic pub room with scarpa inspired, inspired marble floor design. And then zellies Moroccan tile design uh, above really trying to develop the building into a sort of, classical array of what you would sort of dream up if you were walking into a perfect, uh, let's say, an old or a vintage a restored English townhouse in in London town.
0: And where did you get the name, the Golden Swan? What is the background of that?
2: The background is from a name in the twenties that was associated with a venue by same name on the uh, Sixth Avenue in West 4th. The stories that we read about the place were so powerful. We, we always loved the ability to take an old name from New York's history and revive it, because we felt that, that there's something very much New York about recycling the history and being inspired and connected to it, uh, you know, thereby. So, so the, the, the brightest stories are, are, are about Eugene O'Neill writing uh, his plays, Iceman Cometh, and um, Characters in, in the play, you know, coming from the, the bar room, we have a, a painting that sits in our bar that's a, a, a repainting of a painting that hung in the original Golden Swan. But this great story about a Golden Glove boxer uh, who owned the place and had it all walks of, you know, artists and politi- uh, political activists and, um, you know, community member, bankers, uh, all these great uh, stories and and. So we've sort of kept them alive by by using their, some of their names for cocktails and um, weaving their story into the menu and, and stuff
0: like this. Are there signature Mad Abramchik design themes and characteristics in the Golden Swan that are common in all your establishments?
2: Well, I I love to use reused things, uh, which is to say these items that you find that people have uh, either you know sold at furniture markets and uh, used for you know industrial toys that become art or just um in this venue wood that we've used uh that were former barns that we've milled to 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 you know be used for the floors or using tiles now uh that are sort of these these they their moroccan zelich clay tile that um they're they're highly artisanal in the way that they're differentiated from from each to the other by color by texture and the way that they convey light it almost feels like a a used tile or some of some of this uh, um, finish that that like we do in the restaurants where we plaster paint areas that you know sort of look flat or we want to create the idea that age uh, you know sort of this age effect um, and the tiles kind of do the same thing so I guess it's um, playing with age and, and creating texture.
0: How would you describe the dynamics between your restaurants and the surrounding communities? And how does it impact like layout, decor, food, lighting, colors, and music?
2: Well, I think um, we were really inspired at the Golden Swan because of the position of the building and the way that it took the sunlight at the end of the day, literally the room, the first, few weeks, we, we started working on the project would fill, fill with this amber light. And there was this connection with this golden amber hay color from the very beginning because of that. And that actually really ended up shaping our uh, second floor dining room, which feels like you're wrapped in this golden hay blanket, which is funny because the name Golden Swan also later on was inspired by the by the golden light from that first couple of weeks. So it's, it's, it's interesting mm-hmm. how, um, the inspiration can come from a design perspective for something and really take, it, it took over a, a really, in a beautiful way, this, this central part of our restaurant. I mean, in New York and doing things in, in, in different neighborhoods, the context of the neighborhood per se doesn't affect the, the design per se. Um, but, but I think, using elements that are relating to the historical way that people constructed in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, like I remember when we did Navy and Soho, um, there was an area mm-hmm. in the ceiling that felt like it was, it was too big and it le- was like an eyesore in a negative way. So we created this, um, what looked like a hole in the ceiling from a leak or something like this. And we revealed an old style last, uh, installation which we placed there so it was sort of like uh, a way to give a context to a uh, an entire uh, texture of a new york uh, sort of room that had been in one of these old soho buildings where you could see that the the materiality of the space and the lighting and the sort of glow of the of the lass and plaster that was sort of underneath hidden underneath it was was like a very um it felt like a perfectly Soho artist loft uh, kind of rendering of a cafe from a from a different time in New York. But I think, you know, a lot of times these these buildings that I think I'm really attracted to a certain kind of a building that has a lot of history and is a little right. bit more difficult to work with as well. So through through the neighborhoods, you know, I've always tried to find buildings that had um, more more uniqueness in in terms of the period that they were designed in or just the material way, or, you know, when these buildings were built, they they weren't worth very much money. They were highly utilitarian structures. You know, only in the last decades have these things become so valuable. And so people have invested a lot more in them. If you take these older structures that have these great histories, like Beatrice, that there were like tree trunks um, in the basement in place of beams, where you would literally have um, all of these Um, nuances in the way that the buildings were built that didn't really make much sense, although they had lasted perfectly well. Um, But it didn't make much sense. Um, You note it and then you kind of, you play with the materiality that you find in there sometimes. So I think that, that I would say that the buildings kind of inspire a lot of the design by way of just trying to develop true to the building that we're in.
0: The Golden Swan Kitchen is run by Michelin-starred chef Douglas Brixton, who worked under Daniel Ballou for a while and has already made a name for himself in the New York fine dining scene. What is his culinary vision and inspiration for the Golden Swan menu?
2: Sure. We're, well, Chef Chef Doug is a really uh, unique, brilliant, you know, hardworking guy who's really um, inspired by the classical techniques he learned working with. Danielle Valued for almost a decade, and and others, uh, but but also uh, being from California and having sort of this Mediterranean inspirational jumping off point that he uses, um, the food takes on a more whimsical sort of uh, bright, balanced um, flavor profile. I think than people have had in a while, uh, or can find anywhere else.
0: So you said in an interview. For me, everything, even the food, is secondary to the personalities and the energies that are exchanged. What is unique about the personalities and energies at your restaurants that you believe customers have come to expect?
2: Well, I think there's a um, there's always an opinion, and there's a perspective, you know. And I think that um, there are various wonderful people that choose to work in the restaurants, and we try to give people a, an ability to shape. Uh, an, an exchange or an evening by way of um, you know having great hospitality, sort of jumping out of them, but also being um, inspired by what they're doing, and that kind of comes through in in so many different ways. In, in the Golden Swan, it comes through mostly in 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 the food because of uh, Chef Doug's uh, great focus and meticulousness uh, when it comes to the techniques and the consistency. Really, I think. People are extremely charmed by the layout, by the building, uh, which I think is a little bit of a discovery because it's not uh, lit in, in a typical way where you're trying to show lights per se uh, uh, reflecting up the building or you know sort of uh, making the building stand out. And people kind of come in with this sort of low-fi light experience and then they pop through the door and it's this very bright you know, with lights shining off the marble floor and reflecting off the tiles uh, downstairs and then coming up to this uh, dining room on the second floor. That's, you know, at once very new and bright, but also feels like it's been there for, you know, 80 years kind of a effect. People have been really, um, I think, taken with the design and the, just, just the, the personality of the architecture.
0: TikTok's impact on restaurant sales is already undeniable. Following in the footsteps of Instagram and Facebook as important food marketing tools. And for many businesses, investing time and money into a TikTok page or having TikTok influencers broadcast the restaurant's food to their own followings is translating into real-life impact for both new and legacy restaurants. Are you using TikTok or any other social media platforms as a discovery tool for diners?
2: At The Golden Swan, we really allow the diners to, to use their own social media tools. We're not, um, doing that right now. We really want to concentrate on developing the consistency and the brightness of each evening and, and very much, um, focused on the presentation within the architecture of, uh, as far as social media goes, we're very happy and, uh, you know, flattered that, uh, people want to post things. And I think at the end it's, it's, uh, uh, it, the space is so unique and um, bright that it, it's great to see people you know, inspired by, by, by the design and, and um, sort of the elevated dining and, and beautiful food and, and cocktails uh, that we have. And I think um, that, that's, sort of, that's a strategy, I guess, in and of itself, I suppose.
0: You know, almost three years since uh, the pandemic happening, the restaurant sector is still facing labor shortage problems. Chefs and restaurateurs in New York City have had to shorten their work weeks to fewer than seven days, citing labor shortages. Others are changing their business practices to attract new employees. Has that been a challenge for you?
2: We've seen through the other restaurants that we've had, all of these that you speak about. At the Golden Swan, we've been able to inspire very talented, experienced members of our team um, to bring in the people they know that are the most inspired hospitality workers. And I think because of the ambitiousness of the project, no doubt because of uh, Chef Doug Brixton and and General Manager Chris Cobb, uh, no doubt because of their commitments and their um, their deep history of working in the best restaurants in New York and keeping up the standards they have, We've been able to find great team members, and it's been a little bit easier because I think we, we have this um, dream that we share together about creating this hospitality, um, you know, sort of bright spot over on 11th Street. Mm-hmm. The vision is so clear to people that I think uh, we've been a little bit luckier than the average new restaurant. So, um, yeah, that's a really credit to, to Chef and to, to Chris.
0: I've seen this discussion recently about what makes a restaurant get tagged as a classic restaurant and how do you achieve classic status? What is your definition of a classic restaurant? Is it more about, you know, just longevity or something else?
2: Yeah, I think it's more about the depth of the sort of social current, the mark of the social current that happened through that place or the history of the place and how it has lived on and and how people use it i mean there are certain restaurants that are so clearly you know capturing the zeitgeist in, in certain periods like all of keith mcnally's restaurants in the 90s and early aughts and the way they would you know make a neighborhood and become immediately you know feel from day one as if they were always there always populated with you know a mix of diverse new yorkers and tourists and and other folks I think design, usually in the classic spots that we, you know, go back to again and again, there's something memorable about the design as well, or the, the concept sort of stands for a, um, a period of design. You know, I'm thinking about the Katz's uh, and the sort of mm-hmm. lower five, you know, Acme uh, and other, uh, you know, sort of uh, deli, coffee shop places that have um, that classic status, but aren't really, um, you know, they're not like uh, sit down places per se. Uh, They're more so uh, just places that you go to have a brief sort of reminder of what you loved about a certain neighborhood or a street. Um, I live near the Casa Magazine shop. I don't know if you know it on the corner of 12th Street and, and 8th Avenue. And those those guys over there have been like – for some reason, they've had this little magazine shop that has the perfectly uncomfortable New York layout where you have to bump into people pretty much at every uh, <laughs> turn, no matter what section you're interested in. And these guys have that, this little uh, feeling of being in a, a – I don't know, like a market of, of – mag- a magazine market because it's so tight and they're sort of hovering over you, a uh, market stall, but it has this wonderful – sort of classic status that I think is also relevant to what we're talking about, where it's just a place that, you know, it because it exists for a period of time, it has a certain opinion. Um, and then there are all these folks that you end up, you know, meeting and realizing that you share those same joy going to the same places uh, that, that sort of, I think makes that classic status um, that, that's that elusive thing. That's the thing that I think all the people in, in my industry are trying to trying to do.
0: Matt, you have a number of memorable restaurants and bars in the Neighborhood Projects portfolio. Are, are there ones that you're more connected to personally?
2: Well, I, I think because of what we've just been through taking this uh, project on, on 11th Street, the Golden Swan, um, th- this has really been the, the um, development project of a lifetime, uh, re- reshaping an entire building um, basically from the ground up, redoing all the systems, uh, forces uh, another level of um, intensity and strain to understand the operational needs of a property and therefore, you know or, or using those rules um, you know or or needs to develop everything around it. So it was really like putting the puzzle together uh, from the beginning. in a time where there's, you know, so so much, um, difficulty surrounding construction and, uh, supply constraints. It, the, uh, the effort was an extreme effort. So I think for the last period of my life, it seems like all I can remember is building this, um, this rebuilding this building and trying to develop a very clear vision for how the space is used and syncing that with how the place is designed. I think doing that, um uh, in, 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 in the way that we've been able to achieve sort of the consistent and the fluidity of, of the of the floors and the offerings has been uh, the great uh, the great uh, dedication of my life here. But so I would say that the uh, Golden Swan has become the, the place that is uh, you know I spend the most time in. But uh, as far as you know, being connected to, I think all the places are, they, they all come from very personal connections whether Tiny's from a storybook that my father read, my brother and my sister and I, who are my partners there, or Smith & Mills uh, that I built uh, with my dear friend and partner, Akiva. Very personal um, life moments shaping us, inspired by Moto in Brooklyn, where we would go and just kind of uh, dream about opening a small place. And, and, and you know, I, I, I still remember all the... Learnings of doing your first place in a 300-year-old carriage house (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, that was zoned a garage and making that, you know, real estate (laughs) dream a reality. Um, And I guess that's always been part of the very personal side of it for me is is real estate uh, acquisition and development and creating that story for the space.
0: I know you're focused on the Golden Swan right now. Is there anything you could tell us about? future neighborhood projects projects
2: yeah we're really excited to be opening in rockefeller center uh, on the ice skating rink level the concourse level Um, the smith and mills uh brand new smith and mills oyster bar and restaurant this project has been a life dream to do something in a landmark building on the status of rockefeller center personally i've been connected with that building through the several different iterations of my career having (laughs) worked as a young person in finance and then he an even younger person for late night television. Uh, when I was in college, uh, that Rockefeller center campus to me has always been the most magical and creative, the most productive sort of non-corporate corporate sort of environment. And yeah. I've always been, um, just amazed by the scale of the lobbies and obviously the, um, the deco, the detail of the deco, uh, you know, adornments and, and ornamentals, um, uh, ornaments, uh, uh, but, but, you know, the, the oyster bar we're building is a bar in the round with a 20 foot, uh, back bar wall that bisects the, the bar. And so you have these two different personalities of the bar, one in the front that faces the entrance and a door that leads you through the back bar into the rear bar. Um, it's, it's, Something of a dream cocktail bar design. Uh, it's something we, we, we've uh, discussed for a long time, or played with, or thought about for a, a long time. This idea of having a bar in the round and having people surround surrounding a, a, a bar. Something that we always were uh, inspired to try in a very particular way. So we, we're really excited about that space. We think it's going to be um, a very special New York cocktail bar, and also a great restaurant oyster bar to uh, go daytime and evening time and we're looking forward to opening that in september at the end of september
0: matt abramchik owner of neighborhood projects restaurant group and the golden swan restaurant thank you so much for joining me on the show best of luck with everything
2: thank you so much scott what a pleasure to be on your show
0: thanks for listening to this episode of facing the giants please tell a friend about the show Now that you know this show, go check out my other podcast, The Luxury Item. It's a podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the industry. You can find The Luxury Item wherever you found this podcast. Facing the Giants is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'll be back soon with another episode.